Good to be with you all this morning. Good to see some new faces this morning as well. Uh, if you've been in church for any length of time, any substantial length of time, you have likely experienced disagreement. It's part of community life, right? We all come together in these fellowships of faith. We come from different experiences, different values, different backgrounds, nuanced belief. And I think there are times when we look around and we see that and we say, wow, it's wonderful we have differences amongst us. How reflective of the kingdom of God. What a wonderful thing. And then there are times, I think, <laughs> you know where I'm headed, <laughs> where we look around and we see different perspectives and we see different experiences and different beliefs and different viewpoints and we say, ugh. We feel the pain of difference, or at the very least, just how uncomfortable it can be sometimes to be in community amongst difference. Is this anything anybody can relate to? <laughs> okay. I think it's a quite common thing to experience. I think it's especially common in churches like this one. So how do we move through this? How do we find our way through this? How do we find commonality and alignment amongst difference? How do we learn to better exist in and with difference? And not just to coexist, not just to tolerate, but to actually find ways to get about the work of God together for the sake of our city or the sake of, of our communities despite disagreements. So these are the kinds of questions I spend a lot of time pondering. I don't know why, but they are the questions that I spend a lot of time pondering. And I think these questions have drawn through the years deeper into scripture and deeper into church history, where we see that the church has been wrestling with this stuff from the very beginning, for the entire time. And while I don't necessarily think that makes it any easier, I do find some peace in that, seeing as though the church has survived been formed and reformed, formed and reformed through all kinds of turmoil. So that helps me be confident that there's a way through whatever we might be facing at any given time as a church, as a local expression of the church uh, today. And it's with that that we begin this second part, part two of this two-part sermon series around leadership, leadership in the church and leadership as the church, as the body of Christ who goes out into the world. And I want to take us to the book of Acts today. We're going to be in Acts 15, where we have a controversy in the early church that required the church leaders at that time to come together and discern a good pathway forward for the development and for the benefit of the church. Okay, so our story is going to start in Antioch. This is the chief city of Syria. It's a large cosmopolitan city, and it would have been the largest, most multi-ethnic community of believers at that time. And as I've been thinking about this week, I feel like if there was ever a slice of heaven on earth, it would have been the church in Antioch, multi-ethnic, coming together with just some wonderful ministers, including the Apostle Paul himself. Okay, and what I want, to pay, want us to pay attention to as I read through Acts 15 isn't so much the specific discrepancy on the table. I, I don't, I won't, I'll do my best not to gloss over that too quickly because it is important. But what I really want us to focus on is how these leaders come together and what steps they take to arrive at a decision. Okay, so I'm going to read almost the entire chapter, so settle in, get comfy. I might need a snack halfway through, we'll see. <clears throat> Acts 15, be on the screen there, thank you, John. 
Then certain individuals came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to discuss this question with the apostles and the elders. So they were sent on their way by the church, and as they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, they reported the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the believers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the sect of the Pharisees stood up and said, it is necessary for them to be circumcised in order to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders met together to consider this matter. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, My brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that I should be the one through whom the Gentiles would hear the message of the good news and become believers. And God, who knows the human heart, testified to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And in cleansing their hearts by faith, he has made no distinction between them and us. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing on the neck of the disciples a yoke that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear? On the contrary, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. The whole assembly kept silence and listened to Barnabas and Paul as they told of all the signs and wonders that God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, My brothers, listen to me. Simon has related how God first looked favorably on the Gentiles and to take from them a, a people for his name. This agrees with the words of the prophets, as it is written. After this I will return, and I will rebuild the dwelling of David which has fallen. From its ruins I will rebuild it, and I will set it up, so that all other peoples may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles over whom my name has been called. Thus says the Lord, who has been making these things known from long ago. Therefore, I have reached the decision that we should not trouble those Gentiles who are turning to God, but we should write to them to abstain only from things polluted by idols and from fornication and from whatever has been strangled and from blood. For in every city for generations past, Moses has had those who proclaim him, for he has been read aloud every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then the apostles and the elders, with the consent of the whole church, decided to choose men from among their members and to send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leaders among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the believers of Gentile origin in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that certain persons who have gone out from us, though with no instructions from us, have said things to disturb you and have unsettled your minds, we have decided unanimously to choose representatives and send them to you along with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, who have risked their lives for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to impose on you no further burden than these essentials. 
that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what is strangled and from fornication. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So they were sent off and went down to Antioch. When they gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. When its members read it, they rejoiced at the exhortation. Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the believers. After they had been there for some time, they were sent off in peace by the believers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, and there, with many others, they taught and proclaimed the word of the Lord. Whew. Okay. So Paul and Barnabas are co-leading this church in Antioch. They are ministering to this diverse fellowship of believers. And as they are there, seeing God do wondrous things amongst this group, some Jewish believers, could have been Pharisees, could have been other Jewish priests, come into the community and say to the non-Jewish believers, the Gentile believers, that they cannot become part of God's family unless they abide by Mosaic law, specifically by practicing circumcision. Now, this is deeply troubling to Paul and Barnabas, who have been traveling the land. They have been seeing all these new believers, these non-Jewish people come to faith. And so they reject this idea. They radically disagree. And I like how our translation, the NRSV, renders it here in verse 2. Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. So as faithful servants of the gospel, they argue publicly about the false doctrine being shared in and among the church that they've been entrusted to lead. And as spiritual fathers to the Gentile converts, Paul and Barnabas, they're not going to just back down and let the liberties and the freedoms offered through Christ be encroached upon. And so these two men, it says, and some others in the community, they make this trek about 300 miles. They make this trek to Jerusalem to meet with the elders and the apostles to try to work this out. So they go up ranks, so to speak. And I love this, never meant to, meant to waste time, it would seem. Scripture says, as they go, they visit churches along the way, bringing great joy to the believers. So as they go to work out this big discrepancy, they're still preaching the gospel. They're still preaching the good news and about the conversions they're seeing amongst the Gentiles. Then they arrive in Jerusalem, where they continue to share all the good things God is doing amongst the Gentile believers. And note here, it's not what they have done, but what God has done through them. And they're in Jerusalem, so they arrive in Jeru Jerusalem, and the same conviction is spoken again by one of the Pharisee believers, that the Gentile believers need to keep this Jewish practice in order to be saved. Okay, so the apostles and the elders meet. This council comes together. And let me just make an observation that there seems to be an understanding amongst these early church leaders that when difficulties arise in the church, coming together for mutual advice and encouragement is a wise move. So that's what they do. Okay, and then we see these individual members of the council start to speak. The apostle Peter, followed by Paul and Barnabas, followed by James. Okay, so Peter stands up and makes his observation, starting there in verse 7. Thanks, John, if you want to follow along there. Starting in verse 7, Peter stands up. And as Peter is the first one to proclaim the gospel to the Gentile people, he seems especially qualified to make his point. His perspective is going to carry some particular weight in the room. 
And Peter essentially brings before this group the core belief. He reminds them of what they believe, that it is through faith alone that we are saved. The mark of, a new, of the new covenant is not mark made upon the flesh, but rather we are saved, all of us, through grace. Jesus is the reason for our salvation. And Peter also seems to be saying that this matter has already been settled. It was settled when I, Peter, was called by God to preach the gospel to the Gentile people. So he says, why would we put this hurdle in place now? Why would we saddle these new converts with an unbearable yoke now, one that we could not even fulfill perfectly? Peter proclaims that Jesus is the fulfillment of what God was always going to do, that there is only one means for salvation for Jew and Gentile alike, and that is faith in Jesus Christ, who says, take my yoke upon you, all who are weary and heavy laden. Take on my yoke, which is easy. Peter is saying that God's plan was always to include all the nations as his people and that the Holy Spirit is the mark of this new covenant. Then it says the whole assembly falls silent. Why do they go silent? I like to think about this. I don't know. Why do they go silent? <laughs> Are they just so taken by Peter's exhortation? You know, Are they just they're, they're wise? They're listening for nudges of the Spirit? You know, are they just pausing because this is so intense? Maybe it's a little of all of that. I'm not sure. But as I was thinking about that this week, there was a line from a psalm that came to me. Psalm 66, verse 16 reads like this. Those who fear God will most readily hear those that can tell them what God has done for their souls. Perhaps it's the personal nature of Peter's proclamation that draws the room to quiet. I don't know. I'm still left wondering. But the silence is broken, okay, by Barnabas and Paul, beginning in verse 12. And the scripture says that these two, now these two are going to tell of the signs and wonders God has done among the, amongst the Gentile people. So they bring forward real stories of real people engaging a very real God. They tell, of, tell stories of God's grace being poured out. And like Peter... Barnabas and Paul seem to also be communicating that God's plan has always been to include all the nations. And the way they try to show this is by sharing what they have seen on the field, so to speak, right? They are out there. They are missionaries who can say, it's happening because we're seeing it happen. So their perspective also seems to carry some weight amongst the group because of who they are and because of the way God has specifically called them to this kingdom advancing work. Then James goes. James is up next, verse 13, starting in verse 13. So another leader has the floor. Another voice is allowed to share some perspective. And he first addresses the council as brothers or brethren, reminding them, I think, of their kinship in Christ, that they are together. And like Peter and like Barnabas and Paul, James, who's known for his scrupulous keeping of the law, also seems to be communicating that God's plan has always been to include all the nations as his covenant people. And James doesn't come at this by sharing about a vision and a calling that God gave him like Peter can. And he can't necessarily point to miracles or signs and wonders from the mission field the way Paul and Barnabas can, but he comes by offering the group the wisdom of Scripture. 
he turns to the prophets. He goes to the prophet Amos and says, this movement amongst the Gentiles was foretold long ago. It is God who declared through the prophet Amos that Gentiles shall be brought both to know the Lord's name and to call upon it. So we have Peter reminding the group of something essential to this Jesus movement, that we are saved by grace. It is through faith in Christ alone. And he reminds the group that this matter was already decided when he himself was called to preach the gospel to the Gentile people. And then we have Paul and Barnabas telling stories, telling stories of real people in real human lives, stories of God's grace being poured out. They're sharing more firsthand experience. And then we have James letting scripture, specifically the prophets, speak into the situation. And each of these leaders, even though they approach the matter from different angles, seem to concur that the time for Gentile inclusion in God's covenant family has in fact come, and that the old way of marking this inclusion is not necessary for these new believers. This is a snapshot of a communal discernment process. A group of people with different gifts of the Spirit trying to make a faithful choice. And they do that, it seems to me, by making space to listen to one another, to stories and lived experiences, to the scripture, maybe even in the quiet spaces. They listen, they make space to listen. This is the early church, specifically established leaders in the early church in discernment. And through this process, they seem to have reached some consensus. This process takes them to a unanimous decision. They have clarity, it would seem. And then J James is going to make another suggestion. He says, we have to communicate our decision. And we have to communicate it clearly. And so he suggests writing a letter, which we have translated in the scripture. He gives language that articulates the decision that in this case, circumcision and the observance of ceremonial law will by no means be imposed upon the Gentile converts. And they would do well to comply with some things. They would do well by abstaining from idolatrous worship and fornication, two things always to abstain from, and they would do well to mind some food laws, avoid things strangled or from blood, which though not evil in themselves are offensive to Jews. So they're saying, just don't do it. So the Gentile Christians do not have to change their ethnic identity and they are not required to adopt the practice of circumcision but they are being asked to make some accommodations to keep harmony within God's new and expanding covenant family. For the believers in Antioch, and I might say for us still today, the leadership council is saying, you can still fellowship together, you can still be united in Christ together, even though your expressions of worship will have some distinction, even though your practices may differ. And I think James is showing himself to be a great moderator here. He's being careful not to give offense to Jews or Gentiles as much as he can and provoking neither. There are allowances being made here for the sake of unity in Christ. This is impressive, impressive leadership as far as I'm concerned. Did you also notice the way that these leaders, they do more than just hand down a mandate. They use this situation as an opportunity to shepherd God's people to guide them into God-honoring ways. They are showing themselves to be more than just policy makers or rule keepers. They're helping the whole body of believers learn how to live well 
in God's kingdom. And the letter itself is full of little ways they're doing this. They're speaking honoring words about their co-workers, Paul and Barnabas, speaking highly of Silas and Judas as well. And I think there's a special fatherly care on display as well. They say, we don't want to impose on you any further burden because we care about you. We only want to instruct you in the essentials because we care about you. In other words, we're not going to impose anything just to show our authority, only what's necessary to help you live well in the kingdom of God. To me, this is a hopeful picture of leadership in the church. So the letter is written and sent, and how do they send it? No priority mail or overnight express, I suppose. But they do send it with great intention and care. They choose these two men, Judas and Silas, to return to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas as representatives who can read the letter and testify to the reasoning behind it, if need be. Now, these two men, Judas and Silas, they appear to be established, faithful, respected leaders in the church. Perhaps they're there to provide some companionship and friendship to Paul and Barnabas on their way back to Antioch. But the scripture says that these two, Judas and Silas, were prophets, meaning they were gifted to speak what the Holy Spirit revealed to them. Again, I think this council is exercising great wisdom here, sending ahead two of God's messengers, two of God's mouthpieces to encourage and strengthen the believers. Have you ever heard the phrase, the medium is the message? Anyone know that phrase? Here's my design degree paying off. (laughs) Those are the words of Marshall McLuhan, who is a communication theorist. The medium is the message which basically means that the medium, the way through which we choose to communicate, is just important. It just is just as important, if not more important, than the message itself. Meaning that what we say matters, how we say it matters, who says it matters. And so it seems that the choice as to who would communicate the decision and how it would be shared with the church in Antioch was intentional. There was care given to that. Because notice that these two men also stick around Antioch for a while. They don't just go hand over marching orders and say, well, good luck living that out. They stay put, and they shepherd and contribute to the development and encouragement of the church. I think that's important. So these four men, they arrive back to Antioch where they deliver the letter, and the scripture says it was received with gladness. Gosh, if every church-wide decision could just be received with gladness. (laughs) That's a loud laugh from Katie in the second row. (laughs) Someone who knows. This is hard stuff. This is hard stuff that we're talking through here. Leadership is difficult. Many of you know that in the various roles and responsibilities you have around the city and in your jobs. And leading in the church is especially difficult. Leading together is not a cakewalk. It is rarely efficient, at least by the world standards of that word anyway. But my friends, I believe it is worth doing for no other reason than it is what we see the early church doing. It's what we see the early church leaders doing, discerning together in the spirit for the sake of the whole church. Let me point out one final element to this that really struck me this week. It's verse 28. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. What a powerful statement. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. It's a profound declaration from these leaders, I think, that they haven't forgotten who is really in charge. That the Spirit is leading the church, was then, still is. 
and as leaders in the church, and I'm talking now to present leaders in our church, past leaders, future leaders, our work is to discern with the Spirit and with one another where God is leading the church. And this seems to require more than one person being entrusted to the task. It seems to require a great deal of openness, humility, gentleness, these things we talked about last week. It seems to require knowledge of the scripture and a willingness to dig deep into the scripture for wisdom. It seems to require space for deep listening. I think it also seems to require not shying away or being afraid of good God-honoring debate, not fearing conflict, but trusting that there's a way through conflict into transformation. And I think above all, this work of discerning in the spirit to discover how God is leading the church seems to require great faith, to trust that even in our best attempts to lead well, to make God-honoring decisions in our personal lives and in the life of the church, we see through a glass darkly. We rarely see the full picture. We see imperfectly, but we trust that God does and that God can even take our worst mistakes and missteps and create something beautiful. It seemed good to the Spirit and to us. That statement speaks to me of great faith. So our job as mere mortals <laughs> is to do the hard work of listening, listening to God's voice, for God's voice amongst the noise, to our brothers and sisters in the faith, to wise counsel, to church precedent, to the scriptures, until we have reached a decision that seems good enough to the Spirit and to us. And then, pray like crazy. God, we trust that you will fill the gaps that we are too blind or arrogant to see. We trust that you will take our meager attempts and iron out all the wrinkles. Pray like crazy. So look, I, I hope today's passage gives you a picture, a glimpse of communal discernment, leaders leading together attuned to the Spirit for the sake of the church, because this is how we are trying to lead UCC. Imperfectly, <laughs> but we're trying. And it's going to continue to take some time, I think, for us to keep building these communal discernment muscles. It's going to take more and more people, all of us, willing and wanting to practice these ways because most of us have not been in settings where communal discernment is practiced, not in the church and not out in the world. We are used to being led by one single person at the top who has all the answers and calls all the shots, or we're used to being those leaders ourselves. So we have some learning to do, but I have great faith that we can do this because like the council in Jerusalem and those earlier believers, we have the spirit. The Spirit leads the church, did then, still does. I'm confident in that. So there is so much more I'd like to say and so much more we could explore in this passage, but I will, um, I will take a cue from these guys and allow for some silence and stop talking. And let me just wrap up, as I did this week, mostly to an invitation for some self-reflection. How does what I've shared today sit with you? How do you hear it? Where do you align? Where are you encouraged? Where do you just disagree or see differently or have questions? It's okay if you do. And if you want to stick around today, we do this after party thing now. We call it the after party. It's a second service conversation circle. It's a chance for us to go deeper in a small group setting into the passage or the scripture or the sermon. So if you want to stick around, do that, or we can always grab coffee and talk some more. 
So on a personal note, though, I want you to also consider discernment, how discernment shows up in your personal life. Do you, are you someone who naturally seeks wise counsel? You know, do you invite others into your process when you have to make a decision? And if not, what, what holds you back? Do you have any sense of that? How does God tend to speak to you? Do, you? do you have a sense of that? Is it in silence and solitude? Is it through other people? Is it through the scriptures? Is it dreams and visions? How does God tend to speak to you? Do you, do you know? And are there other voices or outside voices that you're tempted to listen to? It's good to just be notice, take notice of that. And if you're presently in leadership here in this church, and that could be lead team, that could be commissions, that could be preaching team, that could be volunteering with our kids and teens. If you're presently in leadership here in this church, let me ask you, and I ask this humbly and gently with a sincere heart, do you have set aside times to listen to God for the sake of this community, for the sake of God's direction for this church? And if not, would you? Would you do that? I am not one that thinks some person is anointed to only hear from God and give the church direction. The Spirit speaks to all of us, and we have to learn together what to do with that. Okay? So take stock. See what comes up for you. Trust the process. Be okay being in process, because if we don't agree on much else, that is one thing we all have in common. We are in process, still being formed to be more like Christ. That is something we all share as people and as the church. Okay? Would you pray with me? <clears throat> Father, I want to specifically just ask for your spirit to move and to come. And that for each and every one of us, Lord, that we would trust that we carry your spirit, that yours is a spirit of counsel, strength, comfort, conviction, encouragement, Lord, and that you still speak to your church just as you did 2,000 years ago. And I pray for each one of us, Lord, that you would help us to know how to hear from you. That you would give us wisdom to discern how you uniquely want to speak to us. Lord, and that we wouldn't be afraid to open ourselves to that. We wouldn't be afraid to sound crazy or look dumb. But Lord, that we would trust that you have good things for our individual lives, direction you want to give, a path to walk, and that you have good things in store for this community. Lord, I have seen it. You have moved this church into a new landscape in a short time and over a long period of time. So Lord, help us to trust that. Help us to trust in your spirit that leads the church and that leads our lives. And I ask, Lord, that you'd give us what we need to hear from you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.